Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Our course platform features many world-renowned teachers, including Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, and Adrian Mishler. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Okay, my guest on the show this week is yoga teacher, dear friend, and down-the-street neighbor, Sean Korn. Sean is an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher. She has graced the cover of over 40 magazines and has produced myriad instructional video series. But where Sean and I really connect is around our shared passion for politics and our common viewpoint that social issues cannot be separated from yoga and spirituality. Sean has been using her platform for years to bring awareness to global issues, including social justice, sex trafficking, HIV AIDS awareness, generational poverty, and animal rights. Since 2007, she's been training leaders of activism through her co-founded organization, Off the Mat Into the World, and her first book, Revolution of the Soul, was published last year in 2019. On today's episode, Sean and I discuss yoga and politics, the impending election, the leveraging of her platform in an explicitly non-neutral and political manner. We talk about the emergence of QAnon within the wellness community and her outspoken efforts to dispel it. She addresses the opportunity within this current moment and the need to get to the polls. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sean Korn. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. I guess I'd like to begin our conversation um, with the with the notion of yoga and politics. Uh, or spiritual spirituality and politics, because you've been at the forefront of this for a very, very long time, and this is something that is in the crosshairs of of my interest every day. Um, you've been teaching, I think, since 1994, 26 years, um, and this has been really a centerpiece of your teaching, maybe not from the beginning, but for for many, many years. And I think you know it's it's. In the 60s and maybe in the early 70s, it was an elixir that made a lot of sense for people. You know, I remember interviewing Marianne once and she was, you know, we did the I Ching in the morning and we went to an anti-war rally in the afternoon. And, and these ideas of, you know, meditation and Eastern religion that was coming to the United States and the efflorescence of yoga in the 60s and 70s, it felt very connected to civic engagement and political work. But then for a long time, kind of in what I deem as sort of the, the era of 
of materialism or individualism that has, um, I think, defined the last 30 years of our culture, 30, 40, 30 or 40 years of our culture. It seems that that personal care or personal spirituality or yoga has become cleaved with civic engagement and politics. Um, and, and many people, I think, feel like, get that sully world of politics outside of my sacred space. Um, but I feel that pendulum is swinging back a little bit. And, uh, and in large reason, because you and, and others uh, kind of within our community have been on the forefront of trying to alloy those things again. And so I wonder how, how do you define that elixir between those two things? And how did that make sense to you that these things naturally go together? Well, I loved everything that you just said, the way that you just, uh, just painted that picture of, uh, of division within the yoga community, this idea of individualism and somehow separate from politics and from engagement, um, the way in which you described it was my own lived experience within yoga moving to LA back in the 90s. It was a little different in New York City when I first got into yoga. Um, even in New York City though, back in the 80s, 80s, 90s, there was still, it was more about my health, my wellness, my experience, my spirituality. There was a lot of individual individualism in the uh, expression of yoga. But simultaneous to me getting into yoga at that time. I was also um, part of National Organization of Women, part of the Women's Action Coalition, WAC, um, ACT UP. Um, a lot of, there was a lot of engagement, a lot of passion um, in regards to the LGBTQ community at that time. I mean, lives were at risk, lives were at stake, and I worked in nightclubs at that time, and so I had a lot of friends who were dying. And to be proactive, especially around HIV-AIDS, was something that was very natural to me and my friends at that time. But there really was a different personality uh, in my activism that I had a hard time reconciling in the yoga room. I went to integral yoga. Everyone wore white, and you went in, and there was this sense of... Um, of being more grounded at peace. You left the world behind you. When you walked up those stairs, that door was shut. Everything that happened out on the streets um, was independent of what happened in the room. And so my experience was like, to Marianne's point, like you did yeah. your yoga practice and then you went out and you protested or you stuffed envelopes or you went to rallies, um, whatever it may have been. So my relationship to activism and politics was already um, bubbling in my own heart. And perhaps it comes from having a, a more of a blue-collar upbringing, uh, being very community-oriented. When you live in that kind of environment, you help each other. If someone's father or mother doesn't have a job, someone's coming to your house for lasagna. You know, it's just the way that it was. And I grew up knowing that you helped your neighbor and that you stay engaged with community. So it wasn't that big of a stretch to see an injustice and want to do something about it. Now, my understanding of justice was very unsophisticated. Um, there was no nuance whatsoever. It's just like suffering, help, yeah. you know? And 
so I moved to LA. And in LA, I still was involved with Women's Action Coalition, did a lot of work around um, uh, abortion uh, awareness rights, uh, domestic violence um, awareness. I was part of a lot of very large campaigns and would go to yoga class. But what I experienced in the yoga studios here was this this new thing that was happening around the corporatization of yoga, mm. around yoga became sexy and steamy and um, community-driven in a very different way. Uh, suddenly, it's for me to get a pair of leggings in New York City was an impossibility. You know, suddenly they're just <laughs> making you know spandex and lycra and all this stuff was happening. Yeah. And... I think that there was a real uh, disconnect from the other, from suffering. And as I got more invested in my yoga practice, and I think as I got older, which happens just organically, I couldn't justify what I had been learning in my yoga practice about connection and oneness and relationship and see that I had to somehow keep my activism separate from my yoga practice. It was just a natural evolution of like, wait a second, these two things are directly connected. Yeah. It just seemed to take a while for some of my contemporaries and the yoga schools and the magazines and everyone else who was a part of the community to be willing to have that realization because too much was at stake. And what was at stake was reputation and money. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting. And I'll certainly raise my hand guilty as charged for taking some part in the commodification or commercialization of yoga. Um, oh, me too. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, I, you know, I wonder, because you've been doing it for so long, that you, <clears throat> you became aware of yoga before it became essentially an asana practice. Mm -hmm. And I think for a generation younger than us, um, you know, it, it was largely framed as a workout and, and a workout that you were going to look great in. Um, and, you know, the other limbs, if you will, were, were potentially sidelined for, for that. Really what I would say is, is the sweat part of, uh, of yoga. But obviously it's hard to be alive right now mm -hmm. and not be part of, well, in some cases, the invective of politics. Um, you know, we are in a time that it is, where that it is so pronounced, you know, anyone that has a phone um, has a 24-7 news feed that you can't even keep up with. I mean, just as a, as a point of example, we were supposed to talk last week and uh, unfortunately, I think a telephone pole fell down and you couldn't make it up. And, you know, I think it was the day after the first debate, or if you call it a debate, I call it a debacle. debacle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even in the five or six days that have transpired since then, uh, you know, Proud Boys stand by. We don't even remember that. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the New York Times um, bombshell tax report or whatever. The, the, the news cycle moves so quickly, often at the expense of, of depth, mm -hmm. um, 
but uh, that we are just taken away in this flurry of activity. And in a way, I, I, you know, I think about um, sort of this, we're sitting in, in this kind of cortisol-fueled sympathetic nervous system, amygdala, fear um, place so much of the time. I mean, even, even me that has cultivated tools for the awareness of that, I'm still sucked into that. And, like, you know, I'm like spending my nights, you know, brooding over this stuff and, you know, trying to catch myself. Um, so there's no, there's no escaping the fact that we have to confront, like, how are we going to manage our relationship with our community, with our, with our civics. And, you know, if yoga is part of your life, um, it's impossible, I think, to divorce those two things. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, but, but I think, you know, you've been very brave and, and courageous to be very clear and blunt about your position. And, um, I wonder what that experience ha has been like with with folks in the community. You know, I, certainly I'm I follow you on the various platforms, and I certainly see plenty of people, you know, cheering you on as as well they should. But there's plenty of people that are highly critical. So I, I wonder how you manage that. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it, it it goes it goes back. You had said something about um, about being a part of the commodification of yoga. And I had responded to, yeah, me as well. And I think that that was a turning point where I came into this as a very serious yoga student. And then all of a sudden, Nike, magazine covers, all these entities coming at me and wanting to elevate me, show me off. And I knew it was not because I was an amazing teacher. I couldn't have been, not in 1994. I was, you know, six months out of a teacher's training. I knew the only reason I was getting opportunities that a lot of other people were never going to get was because I was marketable, that I was white, able-bodied. Um, I fit into a standard of beauty that was um, valued. Um, I'm ethnically neutral, which means I'm so white, you can't even tell what kind, what kind of white I am, you know? <laughs> and uh, I knew that I was getting these opportunities. Now, I wanted those opportunities. I didn't have any money. I didn't come from that kind, I didn't come from that kind of environment. I knew how hard I was working, and I wasn't going to say no just on principle. But I knew by saying yes that I was going to be complicit in validating for example, a standard of beauty, um, for, for supporting a lack of representation, that I was going to be part of something that internally I knew was really problematic. And so I remember that first real deep conflict within myself and how do I reconcile it within yoga? Um, I knew that there's a shadow here that I am now complicit to. But again, I wasn't sophisticated enough to really understand this. It was just something's not okay. So how do I balance this? And at that time, it was to push back at the companies a little bit and say things like they couldn't airbrush me, they couldn't change my body, which was a big thing. Um, uh, meaning they used to airbrush me so that I was unrecognizable to myself. 
So not only like am I participating in a standard of beauty that's unrealistic, it's unrealistic to me. Yeah. It's, it's not real. So I had to fight back at the system and push back in, in a little bit of a way that created conflict. And I had to sit with the discomfort. Like I, I want them to like me, but if I'm doing it just to get corporations to like me or hire me, then that's all about just my ego and then I'm feeding into that. And so my practice let me look at this stuff again and again and again. And as I then co-created Off the Mat into the world, our first work at that time was just about helping people find purpose. It really wasn't more invested than that. But as I started to explore purpose and meeting new people and hearing what purpose was, I started to identify the privilege that exists amongst the people I was working with. Hmm. And then I started looking at the privilege within myself. So there goes another layer. Then I had to start looking at like, okay, and I want to help. And I was like, son of a bitch. Now I've got to learn the difference between help and charity and then charity and social justice. And it just kept getting more the each layer that I had to confront within my own ignorance around the integration of yoga justice, politics, anything that impacts the health, wellness, um, resources of any individual has to be aligned with yoga. You can't turn your back on the suffering of others, otherwise you're complicit to it. And all I kept seeing was all the ways in which I can turn my back because the color of my skin allows it, allows me to. Mm -hmm. But my yoga says, you can't get off the hook that easy. You got to start taking accountability. You got to normalize these conversations within my own experience. So my journey in, in learning more about this integration didn't happen overnight. It's been a long process that has been a part of my path from the beginning. And each stage that I get just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. So when you ask the question, like, how do I feel when there's pushback? The truth is not too much because I'm 54 years old, been doing this a long time. I have a certain amount of confidence. My yoga practice informs the position I'm taking. And if I allow myself to not speak these truths, even if they're not popular amongst people who might not have as much experience, um, again, I have, to, I have to question, is my yoga working? And am I doing the work? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> for me, who is not in, as schooled in yoga, but my yoga is essentially defined as union with my higher self and union with others, with the planet is in union, non-separation in every way mm -hmm. and living in accordance with my highest principles. And if those principles are essentially the perennial virtues that exist across almost every religion or, or spiritual tradition or philosophy, compassion, empathy, love, forgiveness, humility. And if I'm truly living in those virtues, mm -hmm. it's hard for me then not to bring myself back into this human experience and look around my, me and say, well, this is in alignment with, with those principles and this isn't. Mm -hmm. And so then when I get down and, and I'm not going to um, you know, dwell on particular political figures here, but when I, I look at the president, I say, is he in alignment with those principles? Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the answer is obvious. And so to not call that out mm -hmm. for me is, is, is hypocritical to my own spiritual practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, I think where it gets, where one's walking a tightrope is that is my experience and those are my beliefs. And, uh, and I want to respect sort of a, a pluralism of ideas. I do believe in sort of the John Stuart Mill concept of a marketplace of ideas such that we can have public discourse and the best ideas will sort of cream to the top. And I do subscribe to that. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, how do we not call out hate mm-hmm. uh, when we see it? And so do you, how do you, how do you walk that tightrope tight of trying to stand for kind of these perennial precepts or virtues and not just say, well, Trump, mm-hmm. get him out. Or do you say it? I, I say it. I, yeah. Like lives are at stake. And I think that it has to be named. Um, when I think of folks who live on the margins, black and brown bodies who are at risk every single day because of the policies that this administration is putting forth or rhetoric that's being normalized, how our, our culture is, uh, or rather white supremacy culture is being uh, elevated in such a way that things that were once in the shadows are now out and proud um, and wrecking havoc uh, within our culture. I have a responsibility to name it. Again, my privilege lets me not. Right. And in yoga, I, I get, I, I co- totally hear what you're saying. And like, I, I've processed this so much over the years, this need to be inclusive, that yoga is a space as a teacher. I want to hold a space that is non-judgmental, so people can come in. I'm supposed to meet them where they're at and create an environment so that they can drop in, connect to this God of their own understanding and do their healing work. Um, I don't think that I'm their teacher because I'm no different now than I've been for the last two decades of my work. I've always, I've always called out injustice and been willing to, because I, I have to within my own heart, because to your point, if someone is not living these values, satya, truth, for example, um, I, I can't dance around that, make excuses for it, um, make nice to someone just because I want them to come back to class or I want them to feel comfortable. I think about that a lot. Like I feel badly at times when folks who have different ideology than I do feel somehow judged or rejected by me as a, as a human being. Of course, that, that hurts me because I wouldn't want to do that ever. And I would rather run that risk than not using my platform or influence or the trust that I think people have put in me over these years to call out an injustice. This administration is literally killing people. There are the level of xenophobia and racism that's always been there, but that is being excavated to the surface really just mirrors what's within all of us. This is a profound opportunity to have to look at it, but you can't look at it until it's also named. And so I've got to name this and it's uncomfortable. It's even more uncomfortable to look at within it, within yourself. You know, I look, I have to name my own racism before I can call it anyone else's. And I'm willing to do that. Um, Because my yoga, again, satya, it demands that level of self-investigation and that level of truth-telling. So I'm okay 
with the fact that right now, I mean, Republicans feel rejected by me. Again, that makes me sad because what Trump is, I don't really see as being Republican. That's its own, it's its own entity. Um, And again, that makes me feel badly and lives are at stake. I've been struggling with this this idea, and I'll need a moment to scaffold it, um, because I, everything that I read about the evangelical community, for example, or white working class um, that has remained very, very loyal to Trump, despite the fact that they find him quite vulgar, mm-hmm. um, when I read articles or I watch interviews, a lot of those people have maintained their fealty to the president because they feel so ostracized by the left mm-hmm. in many cases or the elite that that calls that labels them as racists. And it, it's it's interesting, you know, after all of the um, progress in the civil rights movement in the in the sixties, in the 70s, the most, the wor- it, it, this wasn't true until the 70s, that the worst thing that you could call someone was a racist. And, and in the 70s, it started to take on different names, like the Southern Strategy, and then subsequently the War on Drugs, or whatever. It just became hidden, um, you know, behind other curtains. And... It became such a sensitive word for a very good reason. Um, but I, th- from what I'm feeling from, you know, people that are on the right and so dedicated to the president is one of, is that they feel attacked and called racists. And, you know, I read Imbra Kendi's book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and obviously, like many, many, many other Americans post May 25th, George Floyd, I had my own personal reckoning with racism and did a thorough personal inventory that was was um, scary and at moments debilitating. And I learned more about probably the history of the American police than I thought I ever would and, um, and a whole variety of different things from the income gap to the wealth gap to mass incarceration and, and across the board. And I really largely resonated with Kendi and his message. Um, I thought, I think he's a beautiful writer, his sort of creative nonfiction way of how he weaves his family. And it, it very much appeals to the way I like to write and I like to read. And I thought many of his definitions were quite um, insightful. But one of the things that he did that worried me was that he in some ways expanded the definition of the word racist to include people that are engaged in inaction or not engaged in action to overturn systems and structures that perpetuate inequities. And I think that that's dangerous because I look at a kind of blue-collar woman who is raising 
a kid with a mental disability who's working two jobs and just doing everything that she possibly can to make things work in her own life. And that is honestly the plight of most people. And even though they're not engaged in dismantling the systems and structures of, that have produced all these inequities, they are, feel as though they are being labeled as racist when in their minds, all they're doing is waking up and doing the best they can. And I, I wonder how, where you come down on this. And I realize it's like two white people talking about racism is like we're basically galloping along the third rail. Yeah. But, but, I, but we have to have honest conversations, yeah. right? And this is a place where I am blurry. Mm -hmm. Because I want to, I've had to sit in my own discomfort of my own privilege and acknowledge it and, um, and understand where I'm perpetuating certain systems. Um, at the same time, I think that our communal goal is to eliminate any idea of race in some level and to move towards a system, towards a society that produces equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um so I wonder what you think, how, how do you navigate that of like essentially people feeling like they're being consistently insulted mm -hmm. and then the kind of quote unquote sort of anti-racist left sort of expanding the notion of what racism is? I can only address it in relationship to the practice of yoga and also, you know, my own work. You said something you know, within within our work as yogis, if there was a goal, it is this idea of oneness. And we understand oneness to be this unification. And but until we could we understand our differences and the places where we're not the same, oneness is just this ideology. It's something that lives in the abstract. What's oneness to you and I is very different to oneness to someone else who doesn't have the same access to what we have access to for no other reason except being born um, in this particular color of skin. And so I look at it through a lens of trauma and trying to help people to understand the way in which we embody racism that has very little to do perhaps with uh, the way in which we, th we, we think or we are, but it's really who we've been, meaning that and again, I like to turn this on myself rather than uh, talk about just people out there only because this is in relationship to normalizing these conversations, which are, are hard to do, but it's taking accountability. It's very mm -hmm. easy for me to tell other white-bodied people what they should or should not do rather than actually have to look at my own stuff. And so part of my yoga practice is just turning that mirror around on myself always. What I understand, though, is that this body, this white body can't not be racist. Even with all the information I have, even with all the training and the tools, it's impossible if you believe in the mind-body connection, meaning that everything is connected, everything is integrated. And in the way in which I inherited my, my eye color, my, my curly hair, I also inherited the fears, the limiting beliefs, the um, grief, the culture of my ancestors that came before me. And their beliefs live deep within my cells. Now, they might not get activated day to day, but this body is also influenced by my educational system and my religion. So I grew up in a 
white environment, white education, white religion, white history, all of that has been imprinted in my body. So let's say I'm out and about walking down the street and I come across something or someone of difference that my body doesn't understand or that my body's been taught historically is scary or dangerous or somehow I feel like I'm a threat, even if I'm not. My, the, the reactive part of my brain might in that moment get activated. I will be put in, even if it's subtle, fight, flight, freeze, or collapse, I'll contract. In that moment of contraction, the same contraction that my grandparents experienced uh, in the face of oppression, the same contraction my great-grandparents experienced being ostracized, perhaps because being Jewish, you know, um, and all that they learned. In that contraction, I am no longer in present time. I am my grandmother. I am my great-grandmother. And odds are I will do or say something in that moment that can create harm or separation because of the familiarity in my system. And it's in that moment that I could actually, especially if it's a person of color, I could actually cause great suffering because of my reactivity. So it really does come down to looking at trauma. Like what if in that moment I was able to ground, take a breath, recognize that I was having a traumatic response and that my reactive brain was ignited, connect to the sensations in my body and be like, all right, grandma, I hear you. You're scared. But what's happening now is not actually in present time. Ground. Maybe I'll make a different choice. And it's the same for all of us. We're all having an historical ancestral reaction to trauma that hasn't been reconciled. And because of all the triggers that's happening politically right now, all of that is activated. As white bodies, we're terrified. Mm. Our privileges, our power, our sustainability, um, our control, it might get taken away. Um, I can't speak for what the the black and brown lived experience, but who know what's whatever is un probably death that they're gonna get killed is what's the undercurrent. So when you don't have tools for for reconciliation in any way, then hate meets hate, fear meets fear, and the cycle continues. So folks who are blue collar who you know maybe they don't live consciously thinking themselves as racist, odds are if we all got really honest with, with ourselves, that every single day that they're doing and saying and responding to the world through the white gaze and creating harm, whether intentional or not, but just not having to look at it. So I do believe that if you're in the white body, you are racist. And this includes myself, even with all the tool, tools I have. And I won't be not racist and in this entire lifetime. It's too deeply mm. embedded. Um, but will I act out on it? I hope not, because I have tools that help me to get present. And that's the, that's the part that's so important. So even if you are engaging, and you often do for, with incredible bravery, even if you are engaging in dismantling the systems um, that have perpetuated a lot of uh, these many inequities that mm -hmm. are so numerous, we can't even name them all, um, you feel that you are you bear some innate racism that you will never be able to shed. I, I, my guess is not in this lifetime mm -hmm. because it didn't take this body 
a single lifetime to get racist. Right. So what then is, what are the tools that we must employ, I suppose, as a greater society in order to process that trauma? Normalize it, like communicate and take accountability. That is key. Notice your, the, all the different ways in which one initiates microaggressions each and every day. Um, be aware of your response to race um, and sit with it as a sensation, as a lived experience, like really meditate on it um, so that when you're out in the world and that sensation arises, you're like, oh, there, there that is. Um, and be actively anti-racist. I think that that's the difference between saying that I'm not a racist and being an actively anti-racist. Sure. I can work as hard as I can, but I feel like my best activism is to do what I'm doing right now is just to normalize it and own it. Right. And hopefully that there's other white folks who are out there that will be less afraid, less ashamed to be able just to acknowledge the obvious. You know, again, it's like I grew up in a household where you know, there'd be all sorts of racist jokes. And it, and we weren't exempt. There was every Jewish joke and every Polish joke, you know, known to man thrown around my table. Um, <clears throat> doesn't make it right. It still was oppressive. It still was really hurtful. It still perpetuated these different ideas in our brains. Um, I want to stop that in my family now, my, my own family. Like, that's that can't be okay now. Um, but every once in a while, I can feel the impulse to want to make that joke just because it's so normalized in my yeah. culture. And it's always a wink, wink, you know, you know, we're not really racist, but actually we are. And so I think it's just the more that we can own it, take accountability, say we're sorry when we need to, and also pass the mic, amplify other voices, get out of the way. I try to use my platform in a different way than I did you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, make more space for other people who this is their lived experience. It's not mine. I can talk about whiteness. Yeah. But I can't talk about what it's like to be in the black and brown body, but I certainly know folks who live that experience who might need the opportunity to come forward and speak. And if I can create that, great. Um, that's what I should do and need to do going forward, um, especially as I will still get more opportunities than most. Um, it's just still the way that the systems are set up. And especially as a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> especially as a grandmother, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I joke, but there is a kernel of truth in there. I mean, as I watch my three daughters grow mm -hmm. up and the environment in which they are growing up, mm -hmm. um, you know, brought into stark relief by 2020 yeah. and all of the things that have happened this year, you know, I, I feel an, an additional layer of pressure yeah. to you know, create a world that is sustainable for them on every level of, yes. of sustainable. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose that, you know, every generation feels like they're in the crosshairs of the most important moment in history. Um, and there's a certain anthropocentrism that is perpetuated, I think, in any every generation. Yeah. And when I have these conversations, um, you know, with people of my father's generation, um, he, my dad's almost 80, um, you know, they they talk to me about, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War. And, you know, there's like, we've been through, mm -hmm. you know, these moments that, were, you know, that that mutually assured destruction was on a hair trigger and, and all these kinds of things. Um, and, 
when I listen to them, I, I, I get what they're talking about. You know, this isn't the first moment in the history of humanity where we've felt an existential crisis. Still, though, it yeah. does feel that we are at a crossroads mm-hmm. on so many different fronts. So we talked about social justice. Um, I mean, environmentalism. I mean, I mean, for me, and again, I'm I'm not a scientist, but I read, mm-hmm. and I've from everything that I read, um, I've got to feel that we are we are at a precipice right mm-hmm. now that if we do not find some cohesion around this, then all other issues become mm-hmm. moot yeah. on some level. And, and and to be honest, social justice and environmentalism are absolutely conjoined and interweaved. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder kind of if, if you were to sort of elucidate a series of priorities of like, this is what humanity needs to tackle. What what are those for, Sean? Oh my God! Would, I know, but <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> um, you just hit me with a big one. Um, you know, right now I feel that there's that saying in the practice of yoga that uh, our liberation is bound, and that no one is free uh, unless we're all free. And I really take that quite literally. Um, in that my yoga is not what's happening on that yoga mat. It's what's happening out into the world where there is separation. I've got to orient myself towards to create cohesion. And if it's in relationship to the environment or animal rights or um, social justice or racial justice, I have a responsibility to that. Otherwise, I'm not sincere about my yoga practice. Again, not yoga as the asana practice, it's the, the tenets of the practice, which is unification with source and understanding of the interdependency of, of all things. And so it's, it's challenging because that's like, where does it end? But the truth is it doesn't. There's a purification process that happens within this practice that demands us again and again to have to look at our complicity in creating um, destruction or devastation. And that includes these environmental efforts. It's why I'm so um, passionate about animal rights. Because to me, as, a, as an environmental justice advocate, got to be a vegan. Like, it's just all connected to me. And so there's like, it's like, I, you know, like, sure, I, you know, cheese would be nice. But <laughs> when I understand what it takes, what happens to the environment, what happens to the animals for that cheese... Again, I have to really look at that bigger picture and say like, well, then I'm a, I'm a hypocrite and I can only hold myself accountable yeah. because this is my practice. Yoga is politics. Yoga is social justice. Yoga is gender rights. Yoga is indigenous sovereignty. Yoga is uh, anything that impacts the health and wellness of any sentient be- being. And so I've got to look at what needs to then change in order for there to be equity, for there to be oneness. And it really comes down to policy. Our Mm -hmm. government dictates who gets a lot and who gets little. Our systems are set up to continually give a lot of power to a few and very little to many. 
that's not right. It's not equitable. It is not oneness. But these policies are in place that will impact generations to come. I know that my body can't dismantle these systems, but I can dismantle the systems within myself that participate. And I can engage in these civic practices that elect leadership that is more closely aligned with the values that are important to me and to members of my community. And so if I'm looking at a candidate, I want to know what is their environmental stance because their environmental stance is also going to tell me how they feel about racial terrorism. Mm -hmm. Their stance on racial terrorism is going to help me to understand how they feel about healthcare. It's, it's, it's all connected. I want to find out the source of that person. And I think that the, to suggest that yoga and politics should be separate means that we keep segregating ourselves from each other. And that is not what yoga is about. So go towards what you're passionate about. Be proactive to the best of your ability. Recognize your own complicity uh, in division in whatever regard, whether it's in relationship to race or the environment or animal rights. Um, look at where does your own comfort, you know, end? Like at what point were you like, you know, mm. I'm... I'm all for animal rights, but man, do I love that hamburger. Yeah. Or I'm all for, or, for environmental justice, but I really wanted that Hummer so badly and I've earned it and I deserve it. These are things that you have to actually sit with. What I look at with this administration right now, uh, from a spiritual perspective, even though what I see happening is so horrifying and dysfunctional, cruel, um, deliberately uh, terrorizing, is that there's nothing that's happening within this, this administration that hasn't already been woven into the fabric of our society. It's just blatant and it's obvious and it's being extracted from the bowels of this nation. And I have to hold that hope that we can only change something that we can see. And now that we are seeing it on a national, global level and witnessing it within ourselves individually, maybe we can actually change something and that more and more people actually have skills for integration and nonviolent communication and centering and, and emotional processing work and learning how to be more mindful in dialogue. That doesn't mean you're not fierce. It just means that when you get triggered, you know how to respond rather than react, which creates more relationship with which allows more space to be heard. As dark as this world is, is as light as it can be. And I hold on to that knowing that there are great people right now doing extraordinary work. But I want to listen to, I tend to want to listen to the black and brown women. Like that's, I'm taking my cues from, from their wisdom, their lived experience, their guidance, and using the privileges that I have to engage my community to think a little bit differently at this time and to be responsible in the way that yoga tells us we have to be for what is true unification and what has to be sacrificed and compromised in order to make that so for all beings. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and I, I, I deeply admire 
your ability to platform other people. You've done a wonderful job with that. Um, and uh, I, I think one of the, the trickiest parts, and I, I know that you, you navigate this as well, is how to foster dialogue and cohesion um, and discussion that is respectful and thoughtful and researched without and and still be really strong about your own beliefs and and where i you know it's again walking a tightrope between becoming sort of part of the polemic um and part of the forces of polarization um by standing up for something strongly but then also trying to build actual bridges and you know this this is sort of a um a jagged line to kind of some of the next things, that, uh, sort of a next topic that I want to talk about. But, you know, I, I watched this, the, the documentary called The Social Dilemma. You may have seen it, but certainly I think, you know, you're, you're very aware of the impacts of social media and almost as a cult factory and that we as individuals are all served up an algorithmically generated feed that is uh, essentially eliminating any form of social cohesion because we all have our own individual sense of fact. Um, so it is hard to to um, a gather or have discussion around any centralized truth because we're actually think that our truth <laughs> is the real one when when everyone else feels that same way. And often bad actors within that soup will weaponize this kind of misinformation and, um, and groups emerge. And, you know, I don't even want to use the word conspiracy theories in some ways, because just using the word conspiracy almost casts the whole skepticism in a, in a, in a bad light. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, many quote unquote conspiracies not come true you know big pharma is responsible for per, for for perpetrating all sorts of misdeeds and malfeasance yeah. but there you know but there are collective fantasies that um emerge now on social media that can be rooted in some very very dark places yeah. so the one that I think we have been most sensitive to over, you know, at least the past six months has been the emergence of QAnon and QAnon adjacent or related theories. And I think one of the reasons that we've been so um, sensitive to it is that we've seen it uh, emerge within our own communities. And for those of, of you not super fluent with QAnon, essentially, it is a theory um, um, that supports the notion that there is a global cabal of elites that is hell-bent on instantiating a new world order, that this cabal of elites is engaged in large, widespread child sex trafficking, pedophilia, and also um, drinking, in the more extreme cases, drinking the blood of mostly Christian children or the adrenochrome. Um, and, and it goes 
potentially sort of farther, farther out on the thin edge of the branch, um, kind of from there. But it is a very pro-Trump movement that uh, that that posits the notion that Trump is here to fight this cabal, and that he's been placed in this position either by people, well-placed people within the military, or maybe by the Galactic Federation of Light. Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's, 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 it goes, it, it goes on and on. Um, but that it, it had originated on what is known as the Chans, 4chan, 8chan, and 8kun, which are these uh, image boards that are very highly associated with white supremacy and white nationalism and militia groups um, that have been, well, 8chan was deplatformed because the El Paso mass murderer mm -hmm. posted his manifesto uh, on there. Um, and these channels are run by a guy named Jim Watkins, who is a uh, who's an expat living in the Philippines who happens to be a pig farmer and a pornographer. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds just so wacky that, mm -hmm. that, um, but, but it has had very serious implications. Um, and, you know, I think where we have seen it also is that it, it that it has taken various issues and, and co-opted them as recruitment techniques to bring good-hearted people, which I would categorize our community mm -hmm. as, uh, into the fold. And, and one of those issues has been child sex trafficking. Um, and many people are aware of the, the hashtag that was save the children and then save our children. Um, and you felt compelled, um, along with a, with a group of, of other teachers to make a statement, um, about this group and about its kind of insidious recruitment um, of folks within the wellness community. So I wonder if you could just take a few moments to sort of elaborate mm. on all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just sounds so wacky just hearing you say it. I know. Like, it's, it's I, like, oh, I have man. a hard time actually uh, articulating yeah. it because when I do, I, I think I'm mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I started, I've known about um, QAnon since probably around, for since Pizzagate yeah. and didn't really give it much thought. You know, it was just one of those things. It was ridiculous. But then after um, the pandemic began, people within the community started to reach out to me, uh, sending me little videos. And I started seeing the Great Awakening and paradigm shift. And they started talking about um, Bill Gates and um, being uh, COVID is a hoax, uh, anti-vax, that and the reason was is because they were going to microchip all of us and you know basically control us and i was thinking like wait a second where is this going i totally appreciate questioning the government we should that's our right we get to we should question and be deliberate in our investigation towards all things because that's our freedom it allows us that and there were certain aspects of this that felt to me that the truth was that there was fear that wasn't being acknowledged. And this group, QAnon and these Q-drops, were affirming that fear and creating almost like a trauma bond between the alt-right and the alt-left that they were finding a point of communication and alliance. And QAnon was giving space for magical thinking. 
Um, and it was just so absurd to me. Like, question, yes, but buy into this rhetoric as it is when all roads lead to Trump, when all roads lead back to, at its core, is anti-Semitic, is racist, is anti-science, is uh, bred in white supremacy culture that lives in this fantasy about Trump's these alternative motives of Trump's, that he's actually a light worker here to be in service to our community, but we just can't see it. And if you just, quote, do the research, you will be able to understand, pull that veil back, and it'll all make sense. Dangerous, very, very dangerous. And especially if it, when I started seeing the hashtag walkaway movement, the invitation for folks who vote Democrat or lean to the left to literally walk away from the party because the party is bad, evil, flawed. This seemed so strategic to me and it was working because folks who have been friends of mine for years, who I would have always imagined were very reasonable in the way they were thinking, were suddenly saying things that were gonna contribute to the potential election and perhaps the advancement of Trump and his policies. And it was at that point where I thought, uh, as I started to do the research, where I realized that these Q drops or this periphery of Q that was starting to target the community, I started to see that they were infiltrating in a very unique way, using a lot of pastel colors, very specific fonts. Mm -hmm. Um, They'd post, become influencers, wellness influencers. There'd be four posts of yoga, wellness, walking on the beach, Vegan food, food, yeah. And then a uh, a little slideshow of being pro-gun or COVID is a hoax or uh, some pro-life stance. And it felt so curated and I couldn't help but like everything in my body became like high on alert and thought that this this isn't a real person. I don't think this is an individual. I think that there's individuals who are doing this and they're understanding that this community is vulnerable and needing something and angry, rightfully angry, and are speaking to it. So, and also I wanna say though, um, that the wellness community is very diverse as it needs to be. And I love the creativity within it. Not everyone within the wellness community who's interested in yoga, uh, meditation, you know, eating vegan food are going to have my, my liberal values. Um, I I think that that is beautiful. It it should be, you know, that, uh, that diverse. So I run the risk when I talk this way of being, um, of alienating a lot of people. I, I get that. And I did when I made that post Uh, but I needed to make some of the people within my community aware of what was happening to recognize that they were using mind control, um, uh, gimmicks. If you go to certain, uh, Q videos, they use music that is set to certain, um, helps certain brain, um, just like in meditation, it impacts the brain waves, yeah. uh, puts you in a trance-like state. In yoga, we, we do that and, and drop words like love, compassion, acceptance, forgiveness. When you're in that, your consciousness is open and, and more available. But in cue, 
They're planting seeds of fear and paranoia and dominance. When you're in that state of receptivity and your fear is being spoken to, it's very dangerous. And I started to see it and thought, I think I need to name this. And because I know that not all people in the yoga community, but there are a lot of people who trust me that know that I'm a pretty reasonable person, that uh, although I am as woo-woo as you get, I'm also Jersey to my core. And I can smell bullshit a a mile away, and I'm not afraid to name it, even though there's consequences to it. And I knew that posting it, there would be consequences. But I wanted to let people know where I stand, more importantly that and give them language in case they were confused by what was happening at this time and also affirm that if they've been hearing things from their teachers or their students that were uh, perplexing them that they weren't wrong in their confusion that there was there is this thing happening and that here's an alternative ideology and pathway that they can explore to get other kinds of research that might help them feel more steady in their beliefs. Yeah. I think what was particularly triggering for me was the child sex trafficking component of it because um, it... uh, (laughs) And I felt a sort of a, I felt that it became compulsory for me to actually really learn about it and where it actually truly exists. Mm -hmm. And I know that this has been a focus for you for a very, very long time. Yeah. So I wonder, and just again, to be clear, you know, that, that, a lot of, I would say, a significant number of people that are attracted to this movement um, require a good deal of compassion because many are survivors mm-hmm. of abuse. Mm-hmm. And this collective has given those people agency and community and they've been heard mm-hmm. and, or feel heard. And... Um, Un, but unfortunately, it's being used for quite nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience working with child sex trafficking. Sure. Where the problem truly exists mm-hmm. and the scale of it is so large that it exists all yeah. over the place. So we could, that's a whole yeah. multi-series podcast yeah. in and of itself. But um, but just talk about your relationship to it and that if people truly care about this mm-hmm. issue and there is every reason in the world to care about it, where they can focus their energy. Well, what was amazing is that when I, when I came public with my feelings around QAnon, how many people came to my comments? Uh, sometimes it's just bots. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a deeper level of strategy that's happening um, to try to engage conversation, to aggravate, mm-hmm. um, agitate. And uh, of course, because I'm anti-Q, 
suddenly I'm pro sex trafficking and I'm a pedophile and support pedophilia. And one of the reasons I came so hard at Q in, and the community around it is because by co-opting Save Our Children and Save the Children, they're acting as if sex trafficking is a brand new phenomenon when sex trafficking has existed worldwide eons mm-hmm. and and in many ways the level of exploitation is literally under our noses and has been by utilizing this hashtag it takes resources away from the organizations that exist whom are doing unbelievable work yeah. it's distracting them it's sending them on wild goose chases and it is speaking to the trauma um, to many people who have been exploited themselves, who have been traumatized as a result. There is this feeling of being seen and heard. Now, as someone who, who, is, who was traumatized, has sexual childhood trauma, to be called a pedophile or a pedophile lover or that I'm pro-sex trafficking by people who say they care about sexual violence, to have people come onto my feed and hit me up with, with in my DMs with so much sexual violence I've had coming at me the last few weeks. It's, if it was someone else's nature or personality, I, I can only imagine the pain and the fear, the genuine fear that they would experience but that's, my life hasn't been threatened, but my body has been threatened over these last couple of weeks mm-hmm. since I came, uh, came forward. But, you know, again, like I, I, you know, I've done a lot of work around that. So it's not, it doesn't sit on me. I expected it. I got involved in this work because of my experience. I started working with Children of the Night, which at the time was the only shelter in Northern California, in, in all of America, actually, and they're right here in Van Nuys, that houses and educates um, children who have been uh, sex trafficked. Very often they use the word, ch- word child prostitute, but that's a word that I reject heartily from my soul because that suggests that somehow this child was, it was complicit within the action. Right. A lot of these children, because of prostitution, have been put through the system. Yeah. These children are trafficked. They're exploited by their families, by pimps, by their neighbors. They look, they're all size, shapes, colors, ethnicities, genders, um, including white, including affluent, um, but that's the minority, you know. Um, And I started working in the shelter because it felt at the time like an environment because of my own experience that I might be able to um, be in service to because I can come at it from a more empathetic eye. Um, And so I started that work then, teaching yoga. Um, From there, I became the Yoga yoga Global Ambassador for Youth Aids, which is an international organization, and they brought me to India. And it was to do work around um, providing necessary uh, life-giving care to 
children infected and affected by HIV AIDS. And they brought us into the brothels in slums. And that was the first time that I was introduced to the international slave trade and understood that it's a multi-billion dollar industry and it is complex and it is insidious and it um, impacts in globally countless young people. From there, uh, off the mat into the world, we started doing some programs. We raised over a million dollars and helped to support organizations doing incredible work like Apneap, for example, mm-hmm. um, who are lawyers who change policies, uh, which is critical. And building transitional homes in India, um, helping transitional homes is when someone who's been sex trafficked are you know, rescued for lack of, in some cases it's a literal rescue, um, but they're brought to this space. But when they're 18 years old, they age out. And if they don't have skills, if they don't have education, odds are at that very vulnerable time, they will be um, uh, trafficked again. And so we built a space uh, literally from the ground up working with organizations uh, that provide space for young people from 18 to 24. And it teaches them skills, how to have their own bank account, how to live together, how to do chores. They have more freedoms, but there's still some support and guidance. And so I've been very invested in this conversation around trafficking for a really long time because it's personal to me. Yeah. And because the uh, how complex it is uh, and the fact that it's right underneath our noses has been often overlooked. But having been a part of these different systems, there's amazing people. They've got their thumb on the pulse of this. If people want to really help, if QAnon folk really want to do something, organize and raise funds for Children of the Night, for Apne App, and for the countless other organizations out there that, that could use the money and get out of the way. Yeah. Great to raise awareness, but not in this way. This is dangerous, and this is going to cause young people to retreat back into the shadows. Yeah. Yeah, also, I think it can be called out that that a lot of children's sexual abuse really happens online and on social media mm-hmm. that you don't actually have to be trafficked in in i suppose the more classic way mm-hmm. um and uh you know i read there's a a journalist named Gabriel Dance who um, runs a small investigative journalism desk at the New York Times that has done some of the most unbelievable reporting. I mean, traumatic reporting, right? Because, I mean, you can only imagine the um, what it's like to work on this topic all day, all night, for years, <laughs> um, and, how, um, and how traumatizing that is. And, you know, one of the, um, you know, often where the perpetrators are, are trading is, is on like a, on Facebook mm-hmm. itself where, where they'll create a, um, you know, a false uh, profile mm-hmm. and pretend to be a 13-year-old and, you know, solicit over messenger, mm-hmm. um, you know, some, 
you know, lurid photography from another kid and then essentially threaten, then come out with a, their true identity and then threaten that kid of like, well, I'm going to tell your parents or I'm going to post this photo on your wall mm-hmm. unless you send me something more lurid or you're, you know, a sibling or something. And then, you know, that, that, pattern which i which is known as sextortion Mm -hmm. just begins to roll up and up and up and you know facebook alone reported 90 million images and videos of of child pornography Mm -hmm. just last year wow wow um just to just to grok the scale Mm -hmm. and you know and you know facebook obviously there's a tremendous problem that exists on facebook um and and it's tied into some privacy issues around encryption where they're talking about you know for under the aegis of privacy rights to encrypt messenger but then then that gives cover Mm -hmm. for anyone trading Mm -hmm. uh in this in this um, illicit material, but to Facebook's credit, they're the only tech pl- platform actually reporting to NCMEC, which is the the federal um, agency um, for missing children and abused children. Um, but you know what's happening on Zoom with mm-hmm. live streaming? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's mm-hmm. hard to even talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it but is. Um, wow. but you know, Google Drive. Dropbox, all these tech companies that are hosting this content. Um, And, you know, this is really where people need to focus their energy Mm -hmm. if we want to eradicate this problem. And we absolutely should eradicate it. Mm -hmm. Then we have to hold tech companies to account. We have to invest in the groups that you've listed. Um, There's another one called A21 Mm -hmm. that I know does tremendous work. and uh, I just hope that this word gets out. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, there are people doing tremendous yeah. work. And I remember um, when my stepson was, uh, stepson was right, maybe 12 or 13, uh, he and his buddies were in their room and, you know, kind of laughing, giggling, whatever. I walked in and, uh, you know, just was like, what's up? And Clyde said, come here, come here, check this out. And he was showing me their feed. And he points to some name. It was just like, you know, something cute. And I had yeah. to like, you know, big, big letter, little letter, letter yeah. number, you know, it was just a cute name. I can't remember what it was. And he said, that's an adult male. Mm. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, that's an adult male. And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, we're fucking with him. And <laughs> I said, how did he know? I asked him that same question and he said it happens all the time. And for whatever reason, he and his buddies knew that this was a man and he was showing me, I can't remember how, how it went down at the time, but he said, was showing me that there was a pattern of questions that happened, that this adult male was pretending to be another 13 year old girl. And there was just in the thread, it started with um, a question and it was like bait to see if the boys would would bite. And the boys knew what to do. So they they deliberately threw it out to see how far this would go. And of course, I went apeshit. Wow. And, uh, and I had to have a long talk with Clyde. I'm like, like, how long has this been happening? And has has anyone ever contacted you directly? Have they ever outed themselves? And he said, no. And all his friends, he said, were very well aware. 
and knew how to kind of navigate, but they also liked to kind of mess with them a little bit and egg them on and didn't understand. He knows now as an adult how incredibly dangerous, dangerous that yeah. was. And my feeling with was be in conversation with your kids. That There's so many young people, the grooming that happens to make children feel valued and wanted and heard and seen. Same with QAnon, the way in which they're recruiting young people and the same with white supremacist movements is through gaming. There's a whole strategy within gaming that helps a young person to feel like they're a part of community, that they're in relationship, that they're somehow special. And so if you have a child who already feels insecure as they do when they're young, or feels like an outsider or misunderstood. Um, these are the kids that get very vulnerable to someone coming online and suddenly telling them that they're special and beautiful and precious and loved and let's get together, let's meet. And so the thing that we have to do, the adults, we have to communicate with our children and make sure that they understand that the, these risks and help to support them, especially if they feel isolated from community in any way. Yeah. No, I mean, this is the kind of heart-wrenching challenges of our time. The mm-hmm. fact that I have to sit with my 10-year-old daughter yeah. and explain to her what sextortion is yes. or sexploitation. Yeah. It's like, it's mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking, but we have to have, we have to be brave enough to have the conversations. But I think that that, you know, in full circle, it's just like, again, yoga is... Having these hard conversations, it's going towards the injustice and naming it, um, even if it means naming it within yourself. It means having to get real about what is happening in this world and the impact that it's having on our collective sustainability and being willing to care enough about the collective to take those risks. Um, it, it's utterly essential. When my, The day my granddaughter was born, I had a dream and in the dream she came to me um, and she was fierce and really intense and she like read me the riot act um, and I got like a real download about what was expected of me on her journey and the way in which she was like, you don't get off the hook, you're going to show up no matter what. And in the dream I I leave her uh, to her parents and I go outside and there's all these children uh, playing and uh and adults but kind of not watching and i notice that there's the the ground is made of slate and it's very rough and a part of me is like oh that doesn't seem safe but there's all these parents so it's got to be okay i i guess um and then i see that the slate is wet and you know when slate is wet it's really slick and i'm like god that really seems dangerous and there's a lot of kids but I guess the parents are watching, it's all okay. Then I notice that the slate is surrounded by this abyss, um, this massive (laughs) hole that's filled with water and the water is undulating and steaming and there's no ropes around this big gaping hole in the ground. And I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) And then I notice there's this rope bridge And all the children are running up on this bridge and it's swaying over this watery abyss. I know. And, And in that moment, I was like, the adult came out of me. And it didn't matter what the parents were doing. It didn't matter 
all I knew is in that moment that there was only one right thing to do. And that's get the kids off the fucking bridge. <laughs> and, and I think that that dream told me that a lot, that we know more than we think we do, that justice, injustice is often right in front of us, but we second guess it because we think other people are probably no more than we know. And unfortunately, it takes us seeing what is so obvious before we act, but we have to act. Otherwise, the children are going to fall into the abyss and drown. (laughs) And so we have to be the adults in this room and name the obvious. And if it means other people are uncomfortable or judge us, I would rather run the risk of their disapproval than the loss of more lives. And so that's how I weigh it out personally, is I can take those hits um, of being not liked. Again, my age really gets me off the hook on a lot of things. Like I just don't have that same care level as I did, you know, a decade ago. Um, But also just experience and if you have any kind of a platform at all, then I think that you have a responsibility to name it. And so that someone else who doesn't have that platform doesn't have to get hurt. So that like I can take the risk of getting hurt or losing a student or losing a follower. Um, But maybe someone else, it might affect their livelihood. So that's my commitment in looking at this integration between yoga and politics and justice um, is that I have a responsibility to move towards it if I really believe in oneness, then that is my right. It's my obligation and it's the work of the practice. And that's what I'm committed to. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sean Korn. To keep abreast of Sean's work, visit her at seancorn.com. That's S-E-A-N-E corn.com. And as always, feel free to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to read and respond to every email. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Yeah.